Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to be back. Let's see if I remember how to do this. We are going to, as uh, Allison mentioned, we're going to be starting up life groups in a couple of weeks, a few weeks. And I'm not preaching exactly according to the book that you're going to be going through, but I'm going to be illuminating or touching on texts that relate to the chapter that you're in that week. So between now and then, we're just uh, covering various uh, topics, not in any particular order, no particular theme until the life group starts. And this morning, since we were doing communion, I thought, what better topic than communion? And our text today is going to be 1 Corinthians 10, 16 to 17, which reads this way. The cup of blessing that we bless is, not a participa- is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. And that's what I want to focus on today. I just want you to imagine with me that there is a picture of God's interaction with his people that runs through the whole Bible from beginning to end. And the picture that we have of God's interaction with his people and that he desires is that of a feast. Just imagine this scene. The the king of heaven, the glorious, perfect, and holy God, has prepared a feast in order to honor his son. And so as we imagine this, the table is all laid out to overflowing with everything that is good, everything that is refreshing, every kind of food that is nourishing and delicious, and there's no calories, and there's no allergies. It's just good, nourishing, profitable food in the presence of God. And we are all there together, as that verse talks about. We are all there together participating at that feast. And so you look across the table, and you see family, and you see friends. You see people that you've never even seen before. You see strangers, but you know that they are for you and not against you, that they are allies. They'll never hurt you. They'll celebrate with you. And there's probably angels standing behind every chair, waiting to serve us as we are at this feast. This is the picture of God's feast for his son, and he has invited every one of us there to be present, and he has provided everything that we need to stay there. So can you imagine that kind of a feast? To be invited to eat with the king of all creation, with the savior of all mankind, and you know what? That invitation has been made. We are invited to participate at that feast. And this picture of a feast that runs all through Scripture, it's not merely an allegory. It's not merely an illustration. It is a reality that we have the ability to participate in. It is an allegory. It is an illustration. It is a picture. But it's a reality that speaks to the relationship of our God to his people. And it's a reality that was began... It was lost, it is being recovered, and it is yet to be consummated again. And the communion meal given to the church points to all of those realities. And so this morning, as we think about communion, think about this feast, and think about the reality of a God who desires to serve 
and to give us everything that we need to be present at that feast with him together as a body, as a family. And you may be here today, and you are not yet a believer. You're just checking things out, or you're looking for something that you have not found yet in your life, and that's completely expected. The missionary Paul speaks to Greek philosophers and Greek academics in Acts chapter 17, and he says, From one man, God has made every nationality to live over the whole earth, and he's determined when and where they would live, and he did this so they might seek God, and perhaps they might reach out and find him. Although, actually, he's not far from us at all, is what Paul says. So he says, there's people looking for God. And this reality of communion points to a lot of important things that will help you as a seeker know the real God that you are looking for. What his nature is, what he is doing, how he acts, what he is towards you, and his heart towards you. Or, you are, like many of us, already trusting in God already trusting in the work of Jesus, his son. And so I hope today that you will see that communion points us towards and causes us to remember many things. Yes, of course, communion causes us to remember and points us towards the cross. But not only the cross. There are many realities, both large and small, if we can even say that, about God and our relationship to him that is present in communion. So let's look at this. I took as our communion text today 1 Corinthians 10, 16. And I'm just going to pray before we start unpacking it. Father God, just ask that your Holy Spirit would be with us today, that it, you would illuminate our hearts and our minds, you would open up our eyes and our ears so that we would see clearly who you are, that we would behold you. And uh, Father, I just pray that you settle me down because I'm really amped up right now. And uh, so, yeah, settle, settle me down, too, so that I don't, like, just unload on these lovely people. In Christ's name, amen. So, 1 Corinthians ten sixteen. I, I chose this verse because it's actually the only verse in the Bible where the Lord's Supper is actually referred to as communion. And so, we want to unpack what that, why that word is important. And uh, I opened up reading the ESV translation, but let's get a little King James here so we can see it a little more clearly. 1 Corinthians 10.16 says, The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? Now, the Greek word translated communion or participation or sometimes sharing, and maybe some of you know this, and I kind of shudder myself internally sharing this Greek word with you, is koinonia. And I say I shudder because if you're over 40, this Greek word may have been slightly abused through the 80s by various well-meaning men's quartets and small groups and Bible studies, and you've heard enough of koinonia to last you a lifetime. So I'll try not to say koinonia too many more times through this. But that's just me, okay? I struggle with the word koinonia because, and I'm not judging people who use and love the Greek word koinonia. That's not my thing. It's just me. I've sort of been traumatized by koinonia fellowships uh, throughout the 80s and 90s in my church life. They're my personal scars over this, okay? And, uh, and it's a fantastic word, and that's why everybody used it so often. It means partnership or fellowship or even uh, intercourse, and I bet the men's quartet didn't realize that when they picked that name. But it means, koinonia means deep and, per you get the idea, it's deep and personal joining together. 
It's fellowship. It's partnership. It's personal sharing. That's why Paul goes on to say, because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel are not those who eat the sacrifices, participants in the altar. So Paul is saying here, this word koinonia, this communion is personal and intimate, and we are one all together just as we are one in Christ. And so in these verses, Paul is saying this is the essence of the Lord's Supper. When we take the cup and we take the bread, we are intimately bound together with each other and with Jesus. This is communion. And we think, okay, that's amazing. That's got implications. But what is this picture of the Lord's Supper? What does it also point at deeper realities of? The Supper, the Lord's Supper, as it was given to the church by Jesus, was a new thing to the Jewish people at the time. It was a new thing that Jesus implemented with the disciples at the Passover meal before his cross. And it was a new thing for the church. But the idea of eating and drinking in the presence of God was not new at all. In Exodus 24, all the nation of Israel has been rescued out of Egypt and are camped at Mount Sinai, having received the Ten Commandments. And God invites the elders of the people at that time, the elders of the nation, to come up to the mountain to meet with him. And in Exodus 24, we read Moses and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu and 70 of the elders of Israel went up and they saw the God of Israel and there was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone and like the very heaven of clear, for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people or of Israel. They beheld God and they ate and drank. And so these leaders of Israel went into the presence of God on the mountain And heaven opened up for them, and they ate and drank and feasted with God. And there's lots of stuff in there we'd love to talk about, but our takeaway is that God invites his people to come and eat and to feast with him in his presence. And then in Deuteronomy, after God provides for the tabernacle as a location for his presence to dwell with his people, he tells them in Deuteronomy 14, He says, you shall take a tithe or a tenth of the yield of your seed that comes from the field year by year and before the Lord your God in the place that he will choose to make his name dwell there, you shall eat the tithe of your grain, of your wine and of your oil and the firstborn of your herd and flock that you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. So now God says to his people, at least one time every year, you're going to have a feast. You're going to take a tenth of the food I've provided for you, and I'm talking bread and wine and veggies, but I wouldn't fill up on salad if I was you, because there's going to be steak and lamb chops and chicken, and bring it all in, and we're going to have a party together, just God and his people feasting in the presence of each other. And this is the second reason that I think God is a Baptist, because he often shows up expecting food, (laughs) right? Just like you're going to do in a few weeks at the AGM, you're going to show up expecting food. And that's okay. That's a very godly trait, okay? God loves to eat with his people. He is reinstating communion. God is in the process, in these chapters of the Old Testament, in these interactions with his people, he's restoring what was lost. These unique feasts like Mount Sinai and the regular feasts as in Deuteronomy are in fact just a recapturing of an even more personal communion that was already lost. 
In the first chapters of Genesis, we're told that God would walk together with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, and that God had told them, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden except for the tree of knowledge and good and evil. And since there was no sin at that time separating man from God, God had created us for fellowship, our communion with himself. Every feast of Adam and Eve was a feast in the perfect presence of God. And don't miss this point. This is what God called good. This communion of our presence together with Him in His presence. And that is what we destroyed by our pride. That is what sin drew to a close, was that communion with God. And that relationship that was lost in the Garden of Eden is what the rest of the history and the whole Bible is putting back in place again. God's whole purpose and his heart towards mankind is to get that communion back again. God says, I want that. I want you with me. I want to feast in your presence. I want you to feast in my presence. I want you together, and I want you with me. This is the heart of God. God desires fellowship, communion, oneness with us again. And so when our fellowship with God was broken, he still allowed some meals in his presence, and they were only a partial restoration of what was lost. They served as a foretaste of the reconciliation and the restoration that God desires. The Old Testament feasts continually pointed to the fact that they were still looking for a Messiah. They were still looking for the one sacrifice. They were still looking for the high priest that was perfect who could restore the relationship with God. But our Lord's Supper on this side of the cross, the communion that we have given by Jesus before his death and resurrection, it reminds us that he has come. The Messiah that the Old Testament feasts were looking forward to is Jesus who has come. And so now we take communion to remember that that Messiah has arrived, and he has opened the door, and he has made restoration of that relationship possible again, that he's done everything that is needed for us to enjoy fellowship with God again now, and to be certain and secure of our communion with God as it is fully realized in the future. The communion we take now does not only look backwards, but also forwards. When the fellowship of Eden is fully restored... Jesus gave us a hint of that when he told his disciples at the Last Supper in Matthew. He says, I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. See see what Jesus is saying there? Pretty much as plainly as he can. We're going to feast again in heaven. And I'm looking forward to that day when we get to feast in perfect communion again, friends. And then later, after the resurrection, Peter restates the purpose of Jesus' coming as a means of restoring communion by saying in 1 Peter 3.18, he says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. Why? Why did Christ do this? Peter says, that he might bring us to God. The whole point is for us to get back into the presence of God again to come before God, to bring us to God. Jesus did all of this. He was born. He lived the perfect life. He died the sacrificial death. He was resurrected as fulfillment of the promise so that he can bring us into the presence of God again. God is trying to restore the communion that was lost. 
And then in Revelation, we have a picture of that restored relationship consummated in a new feast. As John is writing in Revelation, he's told by the angel, write this down. The angel said to me, write this down, John. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. What are we waiting for at the end? Waiting for a feast again. The marriage supper of the Lamb. And blessed are those that are invited. From Genesis to Revelation, it is a feast. God has been at work to restore koinonia, to restore communion, to restore fellowship between himself and his people again. And in fact, he's not just been working to restore it, he has restored it manifestly in the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, whose body and blood we remember in communion in the Lord's Supper. But we do more than just remember. This is the point of what Paul is writing about in 1 Corinthians 10. It's more than just a remembrance. It's more than just a symbol. It is a real fellowship. It is a real togetherness, us together and us together with God. When we take the Lord's Supper, we do not just drink from a thimble and eat a little wafer of bread and think nice, good thoughts about Jesus. It isn't just that symbolic event. Jesus is present with us in his spirit. The communion has really already begun in a way that it could never have begun without Jesus. We are in the presence of the king at the feast. It is communion. And there's kind of pros and cons to the way we take communion today, right? We have this little thimble of juice and a little bit of bread. And the pro of it is that we don't get into trouble that the church in Corinth does in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, right? Where they're just like coming in and they're eating and drinking and some of them are already drunk before other people have arrived. And they're just focused on the food, right? And Paul says, that's not good when you're just... The food is not really the main point. We're supposed to remember that Jesus is the feast. And so this is good. I mean, the reason we do this is so that we don't get carried away with the feast and we remember that the real feast is Jesus. But there's a problem with this, too, because when you take the little thimble and you take the little bit of bread, you don't really get the sense, the picture that God has always wanted to put before us that this is a celebration, this is a banquet, this is a feast. And so I'm going to give you some homework in a couple of weeks, when you're tucking up to the table at Thanksgiving, and you got the turkey, and you got the pie, and you got the hash browns with the cheese in it, and you got the mashed potatoes, and you got the sour cream, and you got that carrot thing, and you got the beans also with cheese. You can pretty much put cheese on all of it if you want. But, but when, you are, when you are sitting at that table and it is heaped up with food and you're like, this is a feast that is going to you know, do me until Christmas, that's when I want you to remember communion. Because that's the kind of feast that God has in store for you. That is the feast that we have in Christ. He is a feast like that. He's not just a little thimble and a little wafer. He is a feast like Thanksgiving times ten. That's when you give your thanks to God for the feast that he is and that he will be for eternity. And so with all of that as an introduction, I'm going to go to the points of my sermon now. Um, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. We're at least 30% of the way through. No. (laughs) Just teasing. Three points that we want to remember in application of this reality that God has prepared for us a feast, and it's not just a symbol. It's a real feast. It's a communion. It is a participation that he has wanted from the beginning, that we lost in our sin, and that he has been pouring out to restore. 
So the first thing we see here is that the king provides the feast. The God who invites us to the feast provides everything we need for the feast. God doesn't say, I'm having a party, and if you bring the right kind of food, or you wear the right clothing, or you pitch in and pay for the venue, then you can come. That's not our God. That's not the kind of God that you should be looking for. Our God that we come to feast with provides everything that we need to be at his feast. I'll mention just three places among many places that the Bible makes this clear. First, in Genesis chapter 2, we have the very difficult story of God testing the heart of Abraham, asking him to offer his child, the child of promised salvation, as a sacrifice to God. And there's a lot going on in that text, but the takeaway is that God leaves with us at the end is that we remember that Abraham, as he goes to honor God in this way, God provides the ram in the thicket instead of Isaac. God says, I'll provide the sacrifice. I've provided what is needed for our communion. I've provided what is needed for your righteousness. He says, don't lay your hand on the boy or do anything for him, for I know that you fear God, and seeing you've not withheld your son. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, before him was a ram caught in the thicket by his thorns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering. God is the provider. And of course, we know that ram was symbolic of a real son, a son of God who would come and who would be sacrificed as a substitute for all mankind, the son that we remember who made communion possible and with whom we have communion. And the New Testament ties the accomplishment of Jesus to the long-awaited renewal of communion by again using a picture of a feast where God is the provider. In Luke chapter 14, the picture is of a marriage feast. And God is, the king has invited people to the marriage feast of his son. He says he had a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. The same parable told in Matthew, Matthew 22, it says, Tell those who are invited, see, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen, my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. See, when God talks about his relationship with us, he says, I've done it all. I've provided what's necessary. I've got the venue, I've got the animals, I've got the food, I've got the cooks, I've got the table. Just come. In fact, in Matthew, he even provides the garments to wear to be at the feast. God provides everything. The king provides everything for the feast. Secondly, the king invites the guests. Some people have a lot of trouble with this notion in terms of their relationship with God, that God is the one who invites. He is the one who calls. He is the one who we have to respond to, maybe because they feel like they're the ones not invited. But it's God's table, it's God's feast, it's God's party, and it's God who invites the guests, and it's God who keeps the guests at the table. Romans 3.10 says, As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. And Jesus said, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them. The King is the one who invites us to the table. And that, what that means is that nobody in their search for God will find him by their own wisdom or by their own merit. Nor do most people who are looking for God really want to find God as he truly is. They are usually looking and wanting to find some version of a God that suits their purposes. They want to find a God that fits their life without too much trouble and who already agrees with things they already believe. And that means that people seeking God never really find God on their own unless, as Jesus says, God takes the initiative to draw them or to invite them. 
It is the king who prepares, and it is the king who invites. But now here's the good news on this point. God has invited everyone. God says there is a way for anyone who sincerely seeks me to find me. I've put my invitation out to all people. If we go back to that parable that I was pulling from Luke and from Matthew, if you look at the middle part of that parable I just read, it says this. It says, but after the invitation, they all began to make excuses. The first said to him, I've bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I've bought five yoke of oxen and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I've married a wife and therefore I cannot come. And so the servant came and told these things to his master. So this is a lot of people were invited. God invited all these people. But they decided they preferred their stuff to God's feast. One guy says, oh man, I've got this business that I'm running and I've got to make money while I can. Another guy says, I got this, you know, sweet new car. I got to go enjoy that car that I got first. Or I've just met this woman and I, I really want that relationship before I want a relationship with you. And the parable here is referring to the Jewish people who were invited, who should have already known. And God says, okay, well, I've invited you. You're welcome to come. But if you're not going to come, then I'm going to invite everyone. And the parable goes on and he says to his servant, go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. And the master said to the servant, go out to the highways and the hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. In Matthew it says, go to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you can find. And so the servants went out in the roads and they gathered them all. You see, this is the God who invites every race, every nationality, Every history, every class, every condition, it does not matter. God is calling you to His feast. He says it doesn't matter your family background. It doesn't matter your history. It doesn't matter who you are, what you think you've done or you can do. You are invited to come to the feast and get a new garment, new clean clothes, a seat at the table. You can encounter and know the true and living God through Jesus, who is the perfect image of Him. But, It is God who invites. The feast, the communion table, is closed to those who don't want anything to do with God. If your life is serving some other king, if you have your hope in some other savior or some other sacrifice, then you can't come to this feast. It's God has provided everything that you need to be there, and he has invited everyone to come, but if you don't want to sit there, he won't force you. It's God who invites. It's God who keeps his guests at the table. And then finally, the king who invites deserves honor. As much as this is a party that God has invited us to and that he desires our participation in and he dresses us for and he welcomes us, we never take this feast for granted. The communion feast is meant to honor the king, specifically to honor the bridegroom of the church, the lamb of God, the son who laid down his life to make this present and future feast possible. And so every disciple who comes to communion, who thinks and dwells on the feast that God has for us and prepared for us, we are coming with a heart of gratitude to honor the King, confessing our unworthiness to be at the table, and expressing our need for God to keep us at the table. Because this is the bottom line that every true believer of Jesus knows, that if it was left up to us, we wouldn't be there. We're not there by our own merit. We're not there by our own intelligence. We're not there because we were clever or we had the right answer. We are there only because God's generous calling and invitation. And he keeps us there. He dresses us in the robes of righteousness that we need. 
And so when we come to this feast, we come to honor the King, we remember that it was Jesus who made it possible by His sacrifice, His grace, His mercy that keeps us there until we dine together at the final feast for eternity. Colossians 1, 19-20 says this, For in Jesus all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things. There it is again. The restoration, the reconciliation, the restoring, the renewing of what was lost. Through Jesus, God is restoring all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. That's what we remember at Communion. This is communion. This is the Lord's Supper. It's what causes us to remember the sacrifice of Jesus, his death and resurrection. Yes, at least we remember that. But it should also cause us to remember the koinonia, the communion, the fellowship that we lost with God, and remember the heart of God that is working since the beginning of history and even before history in order to restore that fellowship that we abandoned who made a way and accomplished a way for communion to be renewed. A God that has provided everything that we need for the feast so that we don't bring anything. We come empty-handed with this invitation and invited everyone, no matter who you are, to come should you respond. And we look ahead, not just remembering all of that, but at the same time we look ahead to this wedding feast consummated in eternity, future The feast made real when full fellowship is restored with God. And so hopefully you've been taking time, even today, to prepare your hearts to enter into this time of fellowship with God, this communion. Jesus is really present with those of us who trust in him. He's not really present physically in the elements. He is really present already in his spirit, living within you. And we are ready to commune with him. But if you don't know the God who I've just described very poorly this morning. If you don't know that communion, if you don't know that fellowship, if you haven't felt the heart of God towards you with his invitation and responded to it, well, if you hear that invitation of God today and his drawing of you to himself, there is never a better time to listen to that invitation than this day. To set down the things of the world, to set down the oxen and the fields and the whatever else that is distracting you from God, to set down any rebellion or resistance that's remaining in your heart of saying, God, you're not the way I want you to be. I want you to be a different way. And trying to make God into your image. To set down all of that sin and rebelliousness and anger and resistance and pride. To set all of that down, anything that's remaining in your heart, and confess your sinfulness and your need for Jesus. And that gets you to the table to feast, not just today, but forever with God. It's what he's desired for you. He's done it all if you trust in him. Let's take communion. Father God, we thank you that we get to share in this. We thank you that we get to take this communion. And I confess, I've been taking communion for a long time. And it's easy for it to become very simplistic very ritualistic. It can become very even self-serving, that we just use it as a time to look at ourselves and make ourselves feel better at the end. And you want that. You want to cleanse our hearts. You want to restore the fellowship. You want nothing standing between us and you. 
But Lord, as these texts have shown us today, communion is pointing to more than just the cross, as if it could. As if there could be more, and there is. It points us to the very heart of you as a father who's desiring to restore a feast with his people. And not just me and you alone together, but all of us together, as we look around this room, as we consider those who are watching online, as we consider the people in churches in this community, as we think of churches in this nation, as we think of churches around the world and our missionary partners, this is a feast that you want us all together to have with each other in your presence. You are filled with joy that your people commune with you together. And so, Father, as we take communion I'd ask that we would prepare our hearts, that we would have nothing standing between us, each other, or you, and that we would celebrate in remembrance of the feast that is your Son now and that is to come in eternity, as we will be at that great celebration that will never end, the wedding feast of the Lamb. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.